our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this church family. Help us, God, to focus our attention now on your word. And we pray that your spirit would speak to us, bringing truth to our hearts, light into our minds. I certainly ask that for myself as I preach, that you would give light to me and that the word would be clear. We thank you for this text in front of us, and as we engage with it, Lord, show us more about who Jesus is and how we can worship him. We ask it in his name. Amen. My favorite genre of movie or TV is mystery. I like a mystery movie, mystery shows. I always like the expert detective, how you know something happens that baffles everybody else, the mystery detector, the detective comes along, he's the expert, he's picking up clues that nobody else sees, and then at the very end, he ties it all together very neatly and telling everybody what uh, they could not see and how obvious it all was. Today's sermon has something of this kind of theme, because the writer of Hebrews is an expert. He's the expert who sees and he writes about a particularly obscure character in the Old Testament. And he tells us why this man is significant. It's a character that's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's like if you blink, you miss it. He's looming way in the background of the picture. But it turns out that he is a far more primary character than what you would have initially imagined. This person's name was mentioned back in chapter 5. But before anything was explained, the writer here, he goes off in a different direction and he tells these people that he doesn't know if they're quite ready to hear what he has to say. Because he wants to tell them some difficult things. He wants to tell them more about who Christ is, plumb the depths of scripture, but it seems that they have become hard of hearing. So he's concerned. So chapter six was spent giving them, now he comes back to the theme that he did mention there in chapter 5. And so I hope in the time that we have remaining to do my best to explain the mystery of the man named Melchizedek, a mystery that is unraveled to us here by the brilliant writer of Hebrews. And I hope that your hearts are encouraged to see just a little more clearly who Jesus is. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 1 through 25. Hebrews 7, 1 through 25. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham." But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. There is a great deal being taught in these words. And we ask this morning that you would make it clear what you want us to hear. Speak to us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Unless you grew up Catholic, and I know some of you did, the idea of a priest is pretty foreign. For other people that are here, priests might bring to your mind cults, religions in third world countries, maybe the Aztecs, and the Mayans, but nothing very modern, right? To most of us, priests belong to a different era. But the point of any priest is to serve as a bridge between the lowly, needy human being and a God who is able to help. That's what a priest does. He stands in the gap between the needy human being and the great and lofty God and brings those two together somehow. And so when we look at a text like this where the primary role being talked about is priest, I don't know how many times that I said that word priest when I read just a moment ago. But when we see words like this mentioning a priest, there aren't many connections that we have to the world that we live in today. But we have to remember that the role of priest was vital to the plan of God in the Old Testament, and it was vital to the lives of these people who first heard this letter. At the center of their understanding of the forgiveness of sins was a priesthood, because what did a priest do? 
He offered sacrifices to God. He worked in the temple of God, where it was said the presence of God was at. The needy and sinful men, they brought their offerings to the priest. He killed the animals and then brought the blood to the Lord. That was his job. And then pronounced that their sins would be forgiven. All these years later, in the Christianity of today, we don't normally think very hard about Jesus being a priest. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that this is absolutely crucial in understanding how Jesus and the new covenant he represents is better. It is better than the old covenant that was given to God's people under Moses. We must understand his priesthood in order to understand who he is and what he has done. And so those priests, they represent the people before God and deal with their sins. What has Jesus done for us? He represents the people before God, and he deals with our sins. And he is superior to any priest who has gone before him. And the biblical writer here sees something like Jesus in the man Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And there are two clues back there in the Old Testament this writer sees that he wants to bring to light. He wants to expose to those who are listening or reading. And it's two texts that deal with this person, Melchizedek. It is Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Two passages of Scripture. Genesis 14 mentions Melchizedek in three, right in the middle of a narrative. Psalm 110 mentions Melchizedek in one. There are four verses in the Old Testament that mention this man, but he sees in him such prominence, such a likeness to Christ that he has to bring him out and tell us what he really represents in those four verses in the Old Testament. And so as you hold your Bible, and I do hope that you have a Bible open in front of you, it will be helpful for you. As you look at your Bible, the first 10 verses that I read today, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, the writer is dealing with Genesis 14. That's what's in his mind. That's the background that he has as he writes those 10 verses. Verses 11 through 25, he is dealing with Psalm 110. That's what is in his mind. So he is, he is preaching to us. He is preaching a sermon, teaching us the, uh, the meaning of these two passages from the Old Testament and showing us how Melchizedek links us to Jesus. And just to set the stage as quick as I can about the story in Genesis 14. So again, hopefully you kind of have your eyes on verses 1 through 10 here in Hebrews. Maybe you remember the story. Abraham has just received the promises from God. He, his possessions have been multiplied. He has herds. He has many servants. But so does his nephew Lot. And so he says to Lot, you know, you pick which place you want to live in because your people and my people, we can't exist in the same area anymore. There are so many of us and so many of our livestock. So you choose where you want to go. And Lot chooses the valley that was close to Sodom. And eventually what happens to Lot while he is living there, some kings come in from a surrounding area. And we think of kings, these are probably more like mayors back then. There was only so many people inside their cities, pretty small cities, but they were called kings. They came in and raided 
the place of Sodom and carried off all sorts of possessions and all sorts of people. Well, Abraham catches wind of this. And so he rallies some other kings to come along with him and 300 men to go out in pursuit of the kings who have stolen all of these people and possessions. And eventually Abraham and his men overtake those who have captured Lot. They get Lot and his family back and all the people back, all the possessions, and they make their way back down to Sodom. And there in Genesis chapter 14, we are introduced to the king of Sodom. It says that he comes out to greet Abraham. And then three verses later, he begins to speak to Abraham. But all of a sudden, in these three verses in between, this mystery man, Melchizedek, appears. And we're told some things about him. He comes out from Salem. It says that he is by his name here in Hebrews, king of righteousness. That's what his name means. His name literally means king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem. Do you know what Salem means in Hebrew? Sounds a lot like Shalom. It's the king of peace. That's what he says here in Hebrews chapter 7. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. Both of those things, while at the same time serving as the priest of the Most High God. So he comes out and he meets Abraham. Abraham pays him tithes. He gives him a tenth of the spoil of all that he brought back from, from taking over you know, these people or overtaking these people who had stolen possessions. He gives this priest Melchizedek a tenth of all of that. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here in these first three verses of chapter 7 he wants us to understand what his name is, what it means, what I have just told you. And so he's already pointing us to something about Jesus, is he not? Righteousness, peace, king, priest. He sees something in Melchizedek that points us to Christ. But what he also sees about Melchizedek here, it says that he has no genealogy. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. And what he means by that is that everybody else in Genesis who means anything, what are you told about them? You're told who their mom was and their dad was and their granddad was and all of their genealogy, linking them all the way back to Adam. We get all these lists and we wonder, man, why, does they, why do they have to tell us who their dad, granddad, great-grandfather, all these people are? Well, here Melchizedek has none of that. We aren't told where he came from or who his people were. He just appears on the scene out of nowhere. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that he has no beginning of days. It's as if he had no beginning. And we're not told about his death and how long he served. So it's like he has no end of days either. He steps onto the scene, as he says there in verse 3, something in the likeness of the Son of God. He sees something of Jesus in this character for those three verses in Genesis 14. We understand that the words of God are inspired, right? We believe that God has given us his word by the power of his spirit. It is inerrant. It only says what needs to be said, and everything that it says is true. But what we could also say about Genesis 14 is that the Holy Spirit has also chosen what not to say. 
So there was reason, even when Moses wrote down Genesis, not to give the genealogy of Melchizedek. And 2,000 years later, thereabouts, 1,500 years later, comes this writer who we don't know who his name is, writing this story that we have, this book that we have in front of us today. And he sees in what is not said a likeness to Christ. There are no end of days. It's as if he lives on forever. Like who? The Son of God. That's what's going on there in Genesis 14. In verses 4 through 10, here in Hebrews, we're told how important the actions of Abraham and Melchizedek are in Genesis 14. We're not given a whole lot in this story of what takes place between Melchizedek and Abraham, but what we are told is very important. We are told that Abraham has paid tithes to Melchizedek. He has paid tithes to him. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And so in that interaction that they have with one another, Melchizedek is shown to be superior to the great patriarch Abraham. There was nobody in the mind of a Jew who was more important than Abraham. He was the patriarch of all the patriarchs. He is where everything started. And then here comes this other man onto the scene that Abraham pays tithes to. He gives to this man what was his. And then this other man, Melchizedek, blesses him. And what's being told here in Hebrews 7 is it is beyond question that the superior blesses the inferior. And so what he wants us to see here is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. It's pretty important for a Jewish person, a Jewish Christian in the first century to see that. Melchizedek is greater. Abraham paid tithes to that man. And then Melchizedek turns around and blesses him. And the argument that he goes on to make. Now, if you know anything about Abraham and his family... Who comes from Abraham? The entire Jewish race race comes from Abraham. Later on, that would have included the Levites, who were the priests under the law of Moses. They were the ones who would have made the sacrifices and carried the things of the temple and served daily inside of it. So it's telling us that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And he says here, it's as if Levi is also paying tithes to Melchizedek there too. Showing that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. That's his argument there in verses 4 through 10. So Genesis 14 is a prophetic passage that doesn't look very prophetic when you first read it. We just see a story there, three verses. I mean, how many times have you read through Genesis and you just saw Melchizedek come and saw Melchizedek leave and you don't think anything else about it? I think that's pretty natural. But again, this man who wrote this letter, he's looking back into the Old Testament. He sees types of Christ everywhere. He sees Jesus all over the pages, everywhere that he looks. And he sees Melchizedek and knows that he is there for a specific purpose. He's been put there for a reason. And he's expounding on that for us here. And so Jesus, he sees, is the one who comes along in this particular line of Melchizedek, this priestly line that just appears and we don't know what happened to it. Jesus comes along in that line. 
a superior line to the priests that were the Levites. That leads us to the next passage that gives us clues. Psalm 110. So that's verses 11 through 25 here in Hebrews. Psalm 110. And again, there is a strange statement that is made there in this particular psalm. Seems to come just out of nowhere. And it is one verse. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this man would have been just reading his Bible, came across that verse, and would have asked the question, who is that talking about? Who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? But he already sees the likeness to the Son of God back in Genesis 14. He already sees what Melchizedek represents in some way. So when he gets here, the question would have naturally come to his mind, who has God sworn that priesthood forever to? But he would have known the answer. He knows what Melchizedek represented in Genesis 14, something that likened him to the Son of God. And so here in Psalm 110, he knows that God is swearing this priesthood to Jesus. This is a promise that is being made by God the Father to God the Son long before he came to the earth. You are going to go to the earth and serve as a priest forever, not in the line of the Levites, but in the line of Melchizedek. His priesthood has continued on and on, in a sense. So will yours. Another question I think would have come to his mind as well. Why would there need to be another priesthood? What would be the point? Because all these Jewish Christians, if they lived in Jerusalem at the time, I believe that Hebrews was written before the temple was torn down. So all these Jewish Christians, they would have been able to walk up there on top of the temple mount and could have seen Levites serving when they read their Bibles. But here, a new priesthood is being promised. What's wrong with the old priesthood? Why do we need a new one for? That's what he's getting at here. He understands why this is. He understands the priesthood that's up there on that mountain serving, making sacrifices, pouring out animal blood. He understands that that priesthood that's up there doing their job right there doesn't actually take away sins. It only pictures forth a greater priesthood that would come and take away sins. He knows that the Levites and the job that they are doing up there, they are deficient in some way. They are lacking. They were never meant to complete the job. They were only to serve as an arrow pointing to the one who would. God knew that this would be the case when Melchizedek popped on the scene in Genesis 14. And he was pointing to Christ way back then before all those priests ever started doing their jobs in the line of Abraham. God knew that when he made this de declaration in Scripture to the Son, before he ever came to earth, he was telling him, you are coming to serve as a priest forever. That's a summary of what we see here in verse 11. That if Aaron's priesthood was good enough, if it was sufficient in and of itself, 
God would not have promised another priesthood to come. Does that make sense? If Aaron's priesthood up there and all the things that they were doing were sufficient, God need not promise another priesthood to follow. When the time comes for you to go out and buy a car, just doing that says something about your old car, doesn't it? Like just the fact that you're out shopping for one says that there is something deficient in the car that you've got, something you're not pleased with, something that does not meet your standard. Maybe it's starting to break down a little bit. And now that you're out there shopping for a new car, that says something about the old car. That's what he picks up on here in this passage. New priesthood is promised, which tells me something's not good with the old one. Something is not complete about the old one, and the new one has come to correct it. And because a priesthood is so important to the whole structure of dealing with sin, if the priesthood is changed, the whole structure that was connected to that priesthood is changed too. The baby in this case does go out with the bathwater. So when the priesthood is changed, whole thing is changed. It absolutely requires it. Because the priesthood was so important to the structure of the old covenant, it could not be removed and expect the old covenant to stay standing. It would be like you deciding just today to go out and knock your foundation out from underneath your house because you want to put a new one in. But what you would find is when you destroy the foundation, you have destroyed the house. And so here he is saying that the old priesthood is being removed. The old house is also being destroyed. And all this deals with the question that would have come to any Jewish person's mind as they were considering Jesus. They would have understood that he did not come from the tribe of Levi. He didn't come from the tribe of the priests. He came from the tribe of Judah. So he is telling them how it is possible that Jesus can come along and serve as a priest and not be a Levite. It's because he is of a superior and ongoing priesthood that in a sense had no beginning and has no end. And yet the Levites had a particular time in God's history where they began and they ended as priests. Now I want to use a, a math illustration if you'll let me. Some of y'all probably don't like math, but math makes sense to me. It makes sense of the world in many ways. And so look there on, on, the, on the screen. So when you've got a line, you've got a line that has two arrows on both ends. What does that mean? Dave, you don't know back there? What are you saying? Infinity, right? It continues on forward and it continues on backward, both at the same time. But what about that other line that says Aaron's priestly line? What if it's got a line with bookends on the sides? What does that mean? It's got a beginning and it's got an end. That's it. What you see of that line is what you get. And so what I want you to think of right here is that way back then when Melchizedek comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 14, there is a kind of priestly line that has started and continues to go forever up here. And you couldn't see it if you're reading your Bible. You wouldn't know that it continues on, all right? But it's up there. 
It continues. It goes on forever. And then God comes along and he makes a covenant with his people under Moses. And he establishes the Levites. All right? It has a beginning right there in the covenant. But it also has an end. It fits, you know, kind of within this other priestly line as far as history is concerned. It starts and it stops. Levites down here, Melchizedek's line up here, ongoing. Jesus is promised not a place in the Levitical line that starts and stops. His priesthood has been joined into this other line that goes on forever. Hopefully that makes sense to some of you. That's what's happening here. Jesus wasn't a Levite. That's why he's not part of that bracketed line. It had a specific purpose in time. It's done. It's over. The Levitical priesthood is, is finished. And the old system with it. But Jesus is a part of the line of Melchizedek that had no beginning and has no end. And his priesthood goes on and on forever. We're also told here that the Levites offered insufficient sacrifices, and they were insufficient men. Their sacrifices were animal blood. How can animal blood cleanse men of their sins? It was meant to point forward to a perfect lamb, and his name is Jesus. And so the sacrifices that they offered were insufficient, but so were they. They were sinful men. They were sinners. They were imperfect, and they died. They had a specific time in life where their priesthood was, where it existed. But when they died, they passed it on to somebody else who came after them. Jesus, we are told, he did not receive his priesthood according to bodily descent, but because he has an indestructible life. That's what is required of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So we don't believe that Melchizedek, or I don't believe that Melchizedek was anything other than a man. He really was a real man. He had parents. He lived and he died. But Scripture has chosen not to tell us any of that in order to say it's as if Melchizedek himself continues to live on forever. That's what his priesthood requires, an ongoing forever priesthood kind of like him. That's what's being argued here. Jesus belongs to that priesthood because of his indestructible life. When was his life proven to be indestructible? It was at his resurrection. It looked like it was destroyed in his death on the cross, right? But he was raised there. He was raised there to live forever and to assume a priesthood that would also go on forever. Earlier in this book, back in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus, he claimed his kingly throne at the ascension. So when he went up to heaven, when he left his disciples, he went up there for his coronation day. He received his throne forever. We talked some about how when kings are introduced in other lands, it's like everybody lines the streets they're singing his praises. They're celebrating as he comes into the gates. I think something like that probably happened in heaven as Jesus came in when he ascended. All the angels celebrating, all the saints of God. Here is our king, and he will rule forever and ever. Something like Palm Sunday, we think of, you know, when we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but even greater when he entered into heaven that day. 
to serve as this king. Something like that was also taking place as the priest that he is. So not only did he enter the gates of heaven that day as a king, the perfect king, the forever king, he entered the gates of heaven as the forever priest as well. There's something else here. Did you notice that about Melchizedek? What was he? He was both king and priest of the Most High God. Now, as far as I know, there is no other character in the Old Testament or in the Bible that is both of those. When God came along and established kings and priests and how they were going to operate, you could only be king or you could only be priest. You could not be both. There was one king who tried and he died. He assumed a role that he was not to have. But what about Jesus? And isn't this beautiful? Scripture is just a beautiful thing. Jesus is both king and priest. So again, when this man, just whoever wrote this, brilliant of brilliant, extraordinarily gifted by the Spirit of God to understand the Scriptures, he reads three verses. Verses that I would have read a thousand times and only thought, well, that's weird. He reads those verses and he sees king and priest in one man and he knows that it is representative of the Son of God. Absolutely beautiful. And he lays all of this out in front of us in about 20 verses. This blows me away to say something so profound and yet so simple. He is telling these people, and if you have to be reminded of what was going on in their lives, he is telling these people, this old covenant that you want to go back to because living for Jesus has gotten very hard for them. People hauled off to prison, persecution, death is coming. And I think they kind of see the writing on the wall. And they start to think to themselves, we don't like this. It's getting really hard. Can we just go back to the old covenant that God was pleased with at one time? And what they're being told here is, is that old covenant that you want to go back to was never intended by God to be permanent. It was never meant to last. And these two short passages, four verses of Scripture, tell us that. This week I listened to an interview between a couple of Christians and a Jewish man. And some of their differences about who Jesus was and what he had come to do, it came up in that conversation. And because I was working on this particular passage at the time, I thought, you know, the amazing writer of Hebrews brings down the whole Jewish system with four Old Testament verses. Just in his explanation of what they mean, he demonstrates that this was never meant to last. It was pointing forward to one who would come, who was meant to last, and it is Jesus, the promised Messiah. But again, all this conversation about priests, we might struggle to find a connection with us because again, most of us didn't grow up with priests. I didn't grow up with a priest. Many of you all didn't either. Just what in my world. So how does this text 
Grab me. What is this text supposed to say to you? I had a Sunday school teacher one time who would say that after you've taught your lesson, there has to be that so what? All right. You've told us about Melchizedek. So what? How is this supposed to touch us? First, back to what I said just a minute ago, that I cannot help but grow an appreciation for my Savior when I see the brilliance of God's plan. When you go read in your Bible and this stuff is brought to light and you see God had this plan all along, long before Moses ever came, he is pointing us to Jesus and this obscure character named Melchizedek. His purpose way back in the story of Abraham was there to point us to Christ long, long, long before he would come. This king of righteousness, this king of peace. And so I have to see here this, that God's word is astounding. See that God's word is true here. What, what man could have written this? Who could have written a book like this? 40 some odd different authors, 66 books, 1,500 years, written to all sorts of different people, and yet there is one story, one thread through it all, and it is the promised Christ who will, who will solve the problem of yours and my sin and bring us back to God in a renewed world that was, that was lost back in Eden. It will be restored in the new garden city. And who will reign on the throne? The perfect Adam, who is a king and priest. A perfect one who did not fail like Adam, who did not fail like Israel, who did not fail like their kings or their priests. He lives forever. And his name is Jesus. Isn't that good? And so what this should evoke in God's people as we read a passage like this is worship. It's just worship. It's just awe sitting at the feet of our God and saying, you are awesome. You are just awesome. And it's almost as if we don't need anything more than that, is it? I mean, worship is what we've been created for. If we're worshiping God, we have all we need. We are in the right place, doing the right thing when we worship God. And this writer here of Hebrews is leading me to worship. And I hope you as well. But that's not all he does. Just a couple more things and we'll be done. Let me read to you verses 18 and 19. Of there, chapter 7. He says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He's talking about the law and he's talking about the priesthood. They're being set aside, laid to the side because they are weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, he said. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope that makes something perfect. The law couldn't do it. The priests couldn't do it. Their sacrifices could not do it. But we have a better hope that can. That's what he's saying. What do you have to be in order to draw near to God? Can you just be good or good enough? You must be perfect. 
You cannot be stained by one sin, no matter how small you might think that it is. You must be perfect. So if the law, if the priests, if the sacrifices made nobody perfect, what good were they? They were only put in place as something temporary until that perfect priest and sacrifice were brought to God's people. So he says here in verse 19, on the other hand, aren't you thankful that there is an on the other hand? That it wasn't just the priesthood that was always given in the, Le the Levitical priesthood. I'm glad there was an on the other hand. That is where Jesus is, and he is the better hope that has been introduced. And so you have presented before you here in these verses, in Jesus, a perfect priest with an indestructible life, serving you always in heaven, promising that he will deal with your sins perfectly. How many of you in this room this morning are sinners? You know, maybe you don't want to raise your hand, but I can assure you that everybody here is and the promise that you have in Jesus is that he is able, as your priest, to deal with every sin you have. Every one of them, perfectly. And I'm going to imagine that in this room, in some of your hearts, and some of your minds right now, some of you are remembering, or at times you will remember, certain sins from your past. They come to your mind. All sorts of failures. Maybe just one, though. Maybe it's the one that you kind of think that God cannot forgive you for. It's the burden that you have to carry. That's the one that I've got to drag around with me the rest of my life. And what we're being told here is that we have a priest who will do that for us. That he is able. And that's even what is being said there in verse 25. Consequently, because he is this kind of perfect, complete priest who deals with sins perfectly, he is able to save to the what? To the uttermost. That's what my translation says. Maybe yours says completely. Whatever it is, it means all the way, that there is not one sin that can run and hide from our priest Jesus and his blood. Not one. They are all completely dealt with in him. He will wash you clean. You do not have to carry it around anymore. I think that's a very good application for God's people this morning. You do not have to carry your sins. Your priest has offered up himself on the cross, presenting perfect blood before God, and he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. Will you come to him? By coming to him, you can know that all of your sins are washed clean. There is no other religion in the world that can make that claim. There has been no sin bearer in any other religion. And so some people just want to scrap religion altogether and just, eh, they're still in their sins. This is the best news in the world for every human being in it. We have a priest who's offered up himself. 
We have a God who loves us and wants us with him. And Jesus, he makes that possible. One final direction and we'll be done. There are people in your life who are outside of Christ. People in your life that you love. People in your life who it seems as though will never come to Jesus. Pray for them. No matter what their sins are, no matter what they have done, they need to hear probably from you about this priest whose name is Jesus. He is able to save them completely, that nobody is too far gone. Do you have somebody in your life that you think that way about? Too far. That person's way too far. But you want to know what? There are people in this room right now that somebody at one time thought was too far gone. And then after a while, you just kind of get used to them being Christians. Well, there are other people out there right now that seem that way too. They need to hear about Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, they'll be sitting amongst us someday and we'll start to think it's pretty normal that they're here now as well. But God's grace is not normal. It is supernatural. It is powerful. It is transformative. And he gives it through this priest named Jesus. I'm going to pray. And then I thought that because of the subject matter today, that it would be a very good way to conclude our service by having the Lord's Supper at the end. And there are a couple of things that you can be reflecting on. And if those who are serving, if you all would please come on forward. Please reflect on your own sins. Give thanks to God when you receive the bread or the cup or both. Be grateful to God for the cleansing that he has offered for your sins in the person of Jesus Christ. And also, bring before the Lord those that you love that you want to see trust in him. And ask that God would powerfully move and radically transform their lives by his grace. I'm going to pray, and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. This is for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who are with him, walking with him by faith. If that is you, if you are a Christian, that you have trusted in his blood, you've been washed clean, you have been reborn to a new life, we invite you to the table with us together. If that does not describe you, some of the words that I've said already, why would you not come to this Savior? Why would you not want him for your own? Look to Christ today by faith and see him dealing with your sins. Put your trust in his blood, not in yourself. It's all about Christ and what he has done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we lay all of these things in front of you, the one who is able to resolve life's greatest difficulty, and that is the sinfulness that we have inside of us. Jesus has come 
to demonstrate your mercy and your kindness towards sinners. You love sinners and desire they would be with you. You desire to cleanse them, make them holy, make them perfect, to live with you in a place called heaven forever. That's what this table represents. And so, Lord, as we partake of the bread in just a moment, may we reflect on your goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. May we worship you simply for the truth that we see here laid out in front of us about who our Savior is, what he has done, what he has promised to a people who do not deserve what you have given. We are overwhelmed by your grace. Again, that is what this table represents. May our hearts be in the right place as we receive the bread. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.